Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. Well, thank you all for coming for a talk about death and other cheerful topics on a Thursday evening. Um, it's really delightful that because this is about uh, the search for wisdom, a desire for wisdom. Here are all these, these people um, seeking wisdom on one of the classical topics of philosophy, one of, the, one of the most philosophical and deepest human questions about our own mortality. Um, so we'll, we'll dive right into that. Uh, the, the title of my talk is taken from a poem by John Donne. And I'm not going to say a lot about it, but I'd actually like to begin with this poem, which is also sort of a, a prayer uh, by John Donne, one of his spiritual poems. Uh, by the way, I, I memorized this poem when I was writing my dissertation. And, you know, sometimes you need a distraction or um, just something else to think about when you're doing work like that. Um, and, and maybe also I was drawn to the theme about about death and <laughs> loss and uh, writing a dissertation can be hard. It's it's not always. Uh, I I enjoy it actually, but it can be it can be difficult. So um, I'll read the I'll read the poem from which my title is taken, um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it. Hymn to God, my God, in my sickness by John Donne. Since I am coming to that holy room, where with thy choir of saints forevermore, I shall be made thy music. As I come, I tune the instrument here at the door, and what I must do then, think here before. Whilst my physicians by their love are grown cosmographers, and I their map, who lie flat on this bed, that by them may be shown that this is my southwest discovery, per fratum fabris, by these straits to die. I joy that in these straits I see my west, for though their currents yield return to none, what shall my west hurt me? As west and east in all flat maps, and I am one, are one, so death doth touch the resurrection. Is the Pacific Sea my home, or are the eastern riches? Is Jerusalem, Anion and Magellan and Gibraltar, all straits and none but straits are ways to them? whether where Japheth dwelt, or Cham, or Shem. We think that paradise and Calvary, Christ's cross and Adam's tree, stood in one place. Look, Lord, and find both Adams met in me. As the first Adam's sweat surrounds my face, may the last Adam's blood my soul embrace. So in his purple wrapped, receive me, Lord, 
By these his thorns give me his other crown. And as to other souls I preach thy word, be this my text, my sermon to my un mine own. Therefore that he may raise, the Lord throws down. So that was a, a poem that Dunn composed, um, as I understand, when he was dying or near death. Um, so he's reflecting on not death in a philosophical sense, but in a very real and personal sense. And one of the one of the most surprising and noteworthy things about his poem is the word joy in that third stanza. Uh, I joy that I'm dying. I, I joy that in these straits I see my west. Uh, why? Well, he tells us in the end that death touches the resurrection, uh, that he, he doesn't experience joy because of dying, which is painful and difficult, but that through faith, at least he reaches out to something beyond that, um, beyond that moment, which is the cause of joy. And this is the traditional Christian attitude towards death, right? We, a Christian recognizes that death is, is an evil in the sense that it's a loss of life, it's a loss of something most precious to us. Um, it's painful, at least the dying part is painful. Um, and yet, and yet, the Christian tradition has always found joy in the face of death because of this something else. Um, here, Dunn refers to the resurrection that, that death is touching. It's just on the other side. Um, of course, we can't see it, and that's that's why it requires faith. We don't we don't know in that kind of immediate way that is more humanly satisfying to us. Like we can't touch it, we can't perceive it. But we believe, um, and that gives us a confident joy. Right? That's what hope is—a confident joy. So this is this is the Christian idea of death, or at least the Christian attitude towards death. Now, um, my, mainly for the talk, I'm going to be doing a lot of philosophy, but I, I did want to start there um, and hopefully end up there as well with the Christian idea. Um, the other handout. Um, this is something I start with in my Philosophy of the Human Person class at University of Dallas. Um, it's a little, I don't know if the author is even on that, on that page there. So what you have is the first two pages and the last two pages of an essay by Clarence Darrow. Do any of you know who Clarence Darrow is? Any law, law students? Or, <laughs> yes. So he was a, an American jurist. Um, who made a name for himself in some pretty high-profile cases, especially, you've probably heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial, um, and it was made famous, of course, with Spencer Tracy playing the role of Clarence Darrow in the great film Inherit the Wind in 1960. Um, so that film was based on a trial that happened in the state of Tennessee um, when a, a certain substitute school teacher began to, teaching Darwinian evolution, which was against law in the state of Tennessee. Um, well, Darrow was the lawyer who made a name for himself in defending the school teacher and arguing that he ought to have the right to um, teach evolution, Darwinian evolution, even if it seemed to threaten, seemed to threaten um, the teaching in the book of Genesis. Of course, we could say it doesn't really threaten it, but that's another talk, another time. 
Um, so I begin in my philosophy of the human person class with this essay, which is not about Scope's monkey trial, but its title is The Myth of the Soul. Um, Darrow wrote this in 1929. And the subtitle is important. Is the belief in immortality necessary or even desirable? So we're not going to read this whole thing together, but I do want to actually read you, um, read with you a few passages, the, those first few lines, uh, because what, what Darrow does here is it says in such a clear and rhetorically convincing way um, what most of our contemporaries think about Christian belief in the soul and in its immortality. So Darrow writes, there is perhaps no more striking example of the credulity of man than the widespread belief in immortality. This idea includes not only the belief that death is not the end of what we call life, but that personal identity involving memory persists beyond the grave. And of course, when we think of immortality and we think of you know, what happens after death, that's what we're usually thinking of, a personal immortality, that, that I myself, that Sister Eleanor, this, this being, somehow survives death. Or when, when a loved one dies, you know, that's our hope, right? That this, not just in some sort of general sense, um, that life continues, but that this person continues. That's personal immortality. Um, now he goes on to say in the paragraph that begins at the end of that first page, even many of those who claim to believe in immortality still tell themselves and others that neither side of the question is susceptible of proof. Just what can these hopeful ones believe that the word proof involves? And here he places, places uh, glove down. The evidence against the persistence of personal consciousness is as strong as the evidence of gravitation and much more obvious. It is as convincing and unassailable as the proof of the destruction of wood or coal by fire. If it is not certain that death ends personal identity and memory, then almost nothing that man accepts as true is susceptible of proof, right? So he says, just look around you. Isn't it obvious people die and they don't come back? They, they are gone. Um, we have no, at least scientifically uh, verified evidence that would lead us to conclude that the soul is immortal, or even that there is such a thing as a soul. Now, of course, he's talking there about empirical proof, um, which is what he takes to be proof. But this is this is a pretty common view, right? Um, although he articulated this in 1929, when there was more uh, more common belief in the soul, I think were he to articulate it now, um, he would find even more support for this position. Uh, now, we might already not accept his conclusion. We might, uh, by faith, hold to the immortality of the soul. Uh, that's good. And we want to continue to hold that by faith. But is there an answer to Darrow from reason? You know, can, can we know anything about the immortality of the soul from philosophy? From reason itself. Darrow didn't think so, um, but the tradition, the philosophical tradition, actually does have quite a lot to say about the existence of the soul and its survival after death. So that's what I want to do with you this evening, is look at um, Plato, Aristotle, 
and finally Aquinas, uh, to understand a little bit of why someone might hold the soul to be immortal, even from a philosophical perspective. And then at the end, I want to connect this to the resurrection. So actually, uh, my, my thesis in the end is that belief in immortality of the soul pushes us towards belief in the resurrection of the body, right? They're not the same thing, right? The soul is immortal, resurrection is of the body. Those are different ideas. But I will try to at least indicate that um, we can't very securely hold on to the immortality of the soul if we don't have some counterpart in the resurrection of the body. It's very hard, uh, even for genius, philosophical geniuses like Plato and Aristotle, to to hold to and to explain the immortality of the soul because they didn't have an idea of the resurrection of the body. So, okay, um, that's the that's the general idea of what I want to do here. Let's go on to um, set up the problem. The problem of death. So even before I discuss Plato, uh, he's the first philosopher I want to talk about, I want to say something about just thinking about death from a natural perspective in the ancient world. So ancient cultures, all ancient cultures, had ideas about death. And all ancient cultures imagined something after death. They did not think of death as annihilation, as there was just no more being. Homer, for example, um, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, there's a lot about death there. Of course, death is a person, is a, a god, and um, Hades is part of the scene of action in um, in these great epic poems. So Hades is the place where the dead live, right? It's not identical to hell, it's certainly not identical to heaven, um, but it's the place of the dead of all kinds. And how is it pictured by Homer, right? This is what, way before even Socrates. It's pictured as a frightening place, a place where the living don't want to go, um, and, you know, if we really think about that, well, why? What is so terrifying about a dead person? You know, they can't, the person can't hurt you. Um, but there's something almost contagious about it, about the, the souls that are pictured in the underworld. Um, death, the place of death is a fearful place, but it's not nothingness, right? I mean, here are all these characters like Achilles that um, Homer shows Odysseus and the Odyssey meets Achilles and other um, friends and acquaintances in the underworld, right? So they're still there, but the life they live is a kind of non-life, right? Because they're dead. But what is, what is death? It's, it's imagined as a sort of state of being, um, which is not fully human and not fully real, right? They're, they exist, but there's something less real about them. In fact, um, before Odysseus has to go through all these things to, in order to speak to them, including he has to slaughter these um, oxen, these animals, so that the, 
the dead can um, drink from this pool of blood, sacrificed blood, so that they can speak to him. Otherwise, they don't recognize Odysseus. So they need to sort of take in someone else's life, even if it's an animal life, in order to even communicate with the living. Um, and the living are all terrified, right? When Odysseus tells his living crew that, that they're going to go to Hades, they all sit down and cry because this is a terrifying prospect. So the, the point here that I'm trying to make is that even pre-philosophically, it was entirely natural for human beings to think about um, something beyond death as something real, um, but not as real as this life, and certainly not something that we desire. Right? It's, not, it's not something that causes joy as it did for Dunn, but something that causes fear and terror. Um, Achilles goes so far as to say, I, I know I was, I was great in the world, but I'd, I'd rather be a slave walking around on earth alive than be king in the underworld. So then we turn to the philosophers, right? Now the philosophers, like Plato and Aristotle, I'm thinking especially, um, they don't differ from Homer and the poets in thinking that there's something after death, but they do differ in that they want to give a reasoned account of what happens to the soul, of what the soul is and what happens afterwards. And with Socrates, we find they also differ about their attitude towards that something beyond. So the philosophers take a more scientific view, you might say. Um, there's a, a famous story recounted by Cicero about Anaxagoras, who was a very early philosopher, even before Socrates. Um, and somebody told Anaxagoras that his son had died. And Anaxagoras reportedly replied, well, I knew that I had begotten a mortal. Right, who would say that? <laughs> I knew that I had begotten a mortal. Like, well, this, this is no surprise to me because um, all men die. And my son was a man, therefore my son had to die. Uh, now, that probably strikes us as somewhat inhuman and certainly cold. But the, this is the scientific view, right? It, it might remind you of Clarence Darrow's um, assertion at the beginning that death is just something natural that all human beings have to experience, so we shouldn't get so worked up about it. We shouldn't be so shocked and surprised and uh, moved by it. So you have that view, the more scientific and philosophical view. And then on the other hand, you have um, Homer's view and this, the, the terror that naturally strikes us in the face of death. Um, and you might say that the whole, um, well, it's a great deal of ancient poetry, uh, medieval also, especially ancient poetry, culture, art, um, comes to exist between these two poles of, you know, we have the the naturalness and the inevitability of death on the one hand. And then on the other hand, we have the fact that it, that death is so fearful and seems to be something wrong, right? That there's something wrong with the fact that people die. We resent the fact that people die. We resent the fact that we die. Uh, so it's entirely natural and inevitable, and yet we resent it. That's a, that's a tension, but it seems to have been a creative tension for human culture, right? So cultures develop all kinds of religious rituals to deal with death, um, funerary culture. And then on the philosophical side, you have a whole other movement that we'll talk about now with Plato, um, the student of Socrates, 
an entirely different way of addressing death or coming to coming face to face with death. But it's important that there is this background, this tradition. So let's go on to uh, Plato. Plato's thinking about death. And here I will refer you to the handout again. There are two quotations from Plato's Dialogue the Phaedo, and uh, both of these are pretty close in, in, in the dialogue. Um, the first quotation, okay, this is, uh, by the way, this dialogue um, is, the scene is the death of Socrates, right? So he's been tried and convicted by the court at Athens and is now awaiting execution and so he's going to drink the hemlock, but he has to wait till a certain point in time. Now it's the day, the day that he's scheduled to drink the hemlock, and that's his, that's his punishment uh, for philosophizing. So he's wait, awaiting his execution, essentially. And what is he doing while he awaits his execution? Well, he does say goodbye to his wife and children, but then um, he sends them away, and he sits down for some good philosophical conversation with his friends. Uh, and this is what he does up till the very last moment. So for Socrates at this point, like for John Donne, death is not merely an abstract question. It is an immediate prospect, right? He is going to die that day. <laughs> He's going to drink the hemlock in a few hours. Um, so he sitting there calmly talking about death with his friends. And what does he say? Well, the first quotation, um, he's trying to explain why he's not angry and resentful. Now, he's been unjustly accused, unjustly sentenced to death, um, and awaiting his execution by his own citizens, whom he did not harm in any way. And he's not resentful. Why? I should be wrong not to resent dying if I did not believe that I should go first to other wise and good gods, and then to men who have died and are better than the men here. That is why I'm not so resentful, because I have good hope that some future awaits men after death, as we have been told for years, a much better future for the good than for the wicked. And then he goes on, the one aim of those who practice philosophy in the proper manner is to practice for dying and death. Now, if this is true, it would be strange indeed if they were eager for this all their lives and then resented when they what they have wanted and practiced for a long time comes upon them. So I'll point out a couple of things about what he says here. One is that he refers to a hope, a good hope that some future awaits men after death. He doesn't know exactly what that looks like, but there's a hope. And there's something that's been passed down, something traditional that he refers to as we've been told for years. This is, what, this is what people think. And they might not know that much about it. But the tradition itself is noteworthy. And it would be wrong of me to resent having to go where I have to go because I have this hope. So why would I resent? It would, it would belie my hope if I were resentful of having to go there. Which, by the way, is one of the critiques that Darrow makes of, of Christians and others who believe in, in um, the immortality of the soul. He says, well, if you're so sure 
about it, then why do you want to keep living? You know, why why do people hang on to life to the last minute um, if they really believe what they say they believe? So Socrates is in a similar point, but um, notably, he seems pretty confident. So this point, this first quotation, shows Socrates' view that the soul is really the essential part of the human being. That is, man has a body and a soul, but it's the soul that's really man, really the human. And the body, I mean, the body is a part of our existence, but you might compare it to the chrysalis that, that houses the, the butterfly while it's becoming a butterfly. Um, it's disposable, and actually it's better off when it loses that. It's not meant to be forever. So if that's the case, right, and Socrates is, is if, if nothing else, he's sure that the soul is real and that it's more important than the body. Um, and if that's the case, then death ought not to be feared because death is something that affects the body, clearly and obviously, but not the soul. It can't touch the soul. And one who has prepared for this by studying the soul through this philosophical life um, should know better. I right? should know not to, not to think of death as the absolute end. So that's the first point. The soul is immortal. The soul cannot be destroyed, according to Plato. Um, and, he, and he actually, in this dialogue, articulates a number of different arguments, which we're not going to go through. Um, it would take too long. And they're also um, somewhat confusing arguments in a lot of ways. But he thinks that he has demonstrated that the soul must survive death. Now, the other point, second quotation, has to do with what lies beyond death. So this comes from just a little bit later in the dialogue. From the handout, this is number two. True philosophers believe and say to each other something like this. There is likely to be something such as a path to guide us out of our confusion, because as long as we have a body and our soul is fused with such an evil, we shall never adequately attain what we desire, which we affirm to be the truth. Why? Well, he gives a few reasons here. The body keeps us busy in a thousand ways because of its need for nurture. Moreover, if certain diseases befall it, they impede our search for the truth. It fills us with wants, desires, fears, all sorts of illusions, and much nonsense. All this makes us too busy to practice philosophy. Um, there was more there in between, um, but you get the idea, right? So the body is, is a sort of burden that we're better off shedding, we're better off without. Um, he calls it an evil here, but it, he doesn't mean evil in a moral sense. I mean, he doesn't mean that matter itself is, is evil, but that it's a cumbersome thing. It's a... It's an awkward part of ourselves, which needs to be discarded eventually. So the soul is immortal, he's sure of that. Um, and the body is mortal, We're also, that's, that's clear to everybody. Um, but the soul is okay without the body. In fact, it's better off. And he, he asserts that the philosophical urge towards truth, towards wisdom, is only that that urge, that desire will only be fulfilled, really, when the soul has um, left the body behind. So thus far Plato. Now, um, 
Plato is often thought of as a dualist. I think that's probably a um, probably an anachronistic way to think about Plato. But um, what what that means is that he thought of the body and the soul as two distinct or even separate parts. Um, now, I don't want to say that he's he's a dualist in the true sense. However, you know he he is quite sure that the the soul is more important than the body, and that the body is. Um, in a sense, disposable. Nonetheless, there are three things that I will point out um, that mitigate against this neglect of the body, if you want to put it that way. And three things that might make us think that there's more, there's more to this story of the fate of the soul after death. Um, and that that more has to somehow involve the body. So first of all, in the very same dialogue that we just heard two quotes from, the Phaedo, um, Plato has Socrates telling us that suicide is wrong, it's prohibited, because uh, we are the possessions of the gods, and it wouldn't be right, right? It, it wouldn't be right to take one's own life um, when one belongs to another. So the body apparently is not just something to get rid of immediately. Um, it, it must be something that the gods value, that, uh, that we ourselves value, of course. We don't, we don't seek out death. So that's one, one point, prohibition of suicide. Second, um, the context, right? So Plato discusses, has Socrates discussing all of these arguments about immortality and the soul always there's an, an ethical and political context. Um, he's, he's always concerned with, first of all, convincing, this was Socrates' whole uh, vocation in Athens, was to convince the Athenians to care more about their souls than their bodies, to care more about the good of their souls than their bodies, which requires a sort of conversion, right? It's you know, not, not to be all about seeking money or health or beauty or uh, pleasure, the goods of the body, in other words, but to instead cultivate virtue, to cultivate wisdom. That requires a sort of conversion, a philosophical conversion. So Socrates um, spent his whole life trying to convince people of that. So given that, that context, that he was constantly trying to encourage people in these lines, um, he's not trying to say the body is evil, get rid of it, or just forget about the body totally. In fact, he's very concerned about creating a city, a, a place where justice and virtue and wisdom can flourish, right? But it would be kind of silly to do that if the body were really evil and meaningless, Right? Why would you spend so much energy trying to make good laws and have a good city? Why wouldn't you just you know, go off in the desert or um, just live a solitary life and then wait for death? Right? That would be logical. But he doesn't do that. Right? So the, the ethical and political context tells us that Plato is not, is not concerned to denigrate the body so much as raise up the soul in our life in our actual life right now to teach us how to care for the soul more than the body. 
That's the second point. And then the third point, um, and I'm, I'm getting this from Joseph Pieper. He has a wonderful book about Plato and myth. Um, so it's interesting that in three of Plato's most important dialogues, including this one that I've quoted from the Phaedo, at the end, Plato introduces a story about the afterlife, right? And that story, the details are different in each one, but it always involves um, figures, right? Images, people somehow clothed in a body. Now you might say, well, how else are we going to imagine without images? How, how are we going to talk about people without somehow having something you can see or talk to? And it's true. I mean, our imagination is about images, of course. But it seems noteworthy that even Plato, for all his emphasis on the soul and its immortality, when he wants to talk about what happens after death, he can't help but put bodies into it. He can't help but clothe, reclothe his characters in some sort of physical manifestation, some sort of bodily existence, even if it's not like the, the bodies that we bear here. So maybe that's just a little hint, a little hint of an explanation or a hint of a, um, a foresight towards what will be fully developed in the idea of a, a new body, a resurrected body. Um, in any case, um, that's enough of Plato for now. I'm going to shift to Aristotle, talk a little bit about um, a different view on the soul, and then, and then finally Aquinas. So Aristotle, I've provided two quotations on the handout that we will use. The first um, is Aristotle's, one of his um, definitions, at least, of the soul. And this is his, from his book De Anima on the soul. He defines soul as the first actuality of a natural body which potentially has life. So third quotation on the handout. Um, what a shift from Plato. So here, Aristotle is more like the scientist who is telling us about the function of a soul as that which makes a living being to be alive, right? And in fact, that means we have this in common with, because we're alive, so our animals, even plants, have a kind of a life. So in this case, soul is not something unique to humans, but in fact, Aristotle saw soul as the principle of life in all living things, even the lowliest. He did, of course, think souls differ, and so the human soul is something special and unique. But soul itself is simply the life of the body, right? It is, he describes it as the form of the body, that which gives shape and functionality to our bodies. And precisely what differentiates a, a corpse from a, a living animal, living body, is what he names the soul. Now, given that, these two things are not just close, but so closely connected, the body and the soul, the form and the matter, that they actually cannot, it seems, exist apart, right? They, they form together one being, one organism. We can't imagine a body without a soul, right? A live an animal body, right? At that point, it would be just remains or matter. Um, it doesn't exist as a body without a soul. 
And likewise, it would seem that a soul can't exist without a body, because what would it form? What would it animate? What would it give uh, functionality to? So their unity is so tight that it seems like they can't exist separately from each other. Death, then, for this view, is the disintegration of the organism. Right? It, it loses that integrity, that unity that it once had. And for, for all things that are visible, material things, that's natural, right? That things that are united as an organism at some point disunite, disintegrate. Um, so death is, is a natural part of life, the scientific view once again. But um, just like with, with Plato, with Aristotle, there are several things that kind of push against this inseparability, several things that make us doubt whether the soul and body are absolutely inseparable. First, Aristotle identifies a longing for immortality in living beings. Not, by the way, not even just in humans, but even in plants and animals in an unconscious way. He sees there to be this desire, this longing for immortality, uh, which they achieve through reproduction. So reproduction is the means by which living organisms continue life, not in their own entity, but by producing another entity that continues that life. Um, but Aristotle describes that um, in De Anima as a way that they partake as far as they can in the eternal and the divine. Right? So reproduction is that by which plants and animals can partake in the eternal and the divine as they can in a way, last forever, not individually, but through their progeny. That's the first point, the longing for immortality. Second point, um, when it comes to the human being, we have this thing called mind. We have an intellect. And mind seems to be something a little bit different than the other functions of a living thing. Very different, actually. Um, and we'll look at this more with Aquinas. But Aristotle already tells us that the mind seems to be a substance that comes to be in the human animal and to be imperishable. So this seems to leave open the possibility that mind is something more divine, he says, and unaffected or separable. Um, that if there's anything of us that survives death, surely it would be mind, right? This is the internal and, and divine aspect of ourselves. So that's the second aspect, this possibility um, of mind as something immortal, something deathless. Um, and then the third idea, this is more of an, an ethical point, but in his ethics, Aristotle talks about how the fortunes of the dead seem to affect the living. And it's a very traditional idea in ancient culture. So think of like Antigone. She risked her life to bury her brother uh, because he had been denied burial for political reasons. So she thought it was that important that she would risk her life to bury her, her dead brother because somehow he wouldn't be at rest. Somehow his, his soul would be disturbed um, were he not to be buried. Now Aristotle cites that type of opinion um, and he doesn't disagree with it. He doesn't dispute it. No, but how could, if the dead didn't exist, how could they be affected? Right? How could the fortunes of what happens on earth have any impact on something that didn't exist. So another hint, 
another hint, but just a hint, right? Aristotle and Plato are, are certainly not um, maintaining a sort of full understanding of the immortality of the soul, or even, uh, or certainly not the resurrection of the body. Uh, so I will skip over later philosophers, um, such as the Stoics and Epicureans. Epicureans, they have they have less um, interesting and satisfying ideas. But anyway, they, they um, don't stop talking about the soul, but it, it's not quite as potent as um, the ideas of Plato and Aristotle, and, and not quite as apt for picking up by someone like Aquinas in the Christian tradition. So now, finally, St. Thomas Aquinas. Aristotle um, gave us an, a sort of advance in scientific thinking about the soul, and he talked about soul as the principle of life in a living thing. But the more we understand that, the more we understand the soul as the form of the body, the less confident we are about the soul's ability to survive the end of the body, to survive death. Now, it might seem like that's just the price we have to pay. You know, and this is Darrow's view, that as, as a culture gets more scientific, amasses more knowledge, its belief in these traditional ideas of the fate of the soul get weaker and weaker. Now, maybe we could sort of carve out a space, like you can believe that, but it's not rational. Um, it has nothing to do with your science. It has nothing to do with your reason. That's one option, right? That's, that's one option. But that's certainly not the option that Thomas Aquinas embraced. In fact, he thinks that we can demonstrate that the human soul is incorruptible, is immortal and deathless. Um, now, it's a hard argument, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna warn you that this is not an easy demonstration. But if we can get anything out of this, I think the very fact that he um, attempts to demonstrate this using reason that the soul can survive, the soul is not not corruptible, um, ought to be something that draws our attention, right? It ought to be worthy of our study and consideration. So even if we don't get through all of it um, tonight or grasp all of it. I'm still trying after many years of reading this argument over and over. Um, still, that it's, that it's there, I think, should stick with us um, and we should come back to it. And then in addition to that, um, well, well, we'll get to at the very end the idea of the body once again. So whether the human soul is corruptible, St. Thomas asked this question in the Summa Theologiae, um, it's the first part, question 75, article six. Um, and I have a, a long quotation from that article on the end of the handout. Uh, so I won't read it all to you, but I do wanna read um, a little bit of it and try to help you make sense of it. In order to do that, we need three definitions. So he's gonna use this word subsists. Um, and by that, by subsisting, he means something that exists on its own, in its own right, uh, rather than something that exists only in, in another. So for example, my classes, I often use the example of frog. So I'll pull out the frog right now. A frog subsists, right? It's a being on its own. It hops around. It subsists. Hopping, though, 
does not subsist, right? Try to imagine hopping without a hopper. You've got to have something there with legs, usually, um, to do the hopping, right? So the frog subsists, hopping does not subsist. It exists only in the frog. Um, and then second, Aquinas is going to use these terms corruption per se and corruption per accidents. So corruption per se, um, he means something that ceases to be in its own right. So just like it subsists, it exists in its own right, something can cease to be or corrupt in its own right. Um, like when the frog dies, that's corruption per se. Now, corruption per accidents is also something ceasing to be, but where it ceases to be because of something else. So like the hopping, right? If the frog dies, I use the frog example because I don't know, like if I used cat, someone might be very fond of cats and be sad if I talked about the cat dying. So um, I don't want that. Frog, I'm sorry if any of you have frog pets because this might make you sad. <laughs> but your frog is not dying. <laughs> this is a hypothetical frog. When the hypothetical frog dies, its hopping also ceases to be. Do you see that? Right. It, the, there's no longer a hopping when the frog ceases to be. But it's not as if hopping died. That doesn't make sense. Hopping just ceases to be because the frog dies. So the frog corrupts per se in Aquinas' language, and the hopping corrupts per accidents. It ceases to be because the frog ceases to be. Okay, so that's the, that's the vocabulary. Now the argument that Aquinas makes um, builds on some things he's already said, as usual, but um, here he starts in with the human soul. And so he says, one must claim that the human soul, which we call the intellective principle, and that just means it's the source of our intellectual activity, right? It's what makes us able to think in an intellectual way. The human soul is incorruptible. Why? Well, a thing is corrupted in one of two ways. It ceases to be. It's corrupted either per se or per accidents. So per se like the frog or per accidents like the hopping. But it is impossible for anything subsistent, anything that subsists or exists in its own right, to be generated or corrupted per accidents. That is, generated or corrupted because something else is generated or corrupted. So hopping might cease to be because the frog does, but the frog doesn't cease to be because the other frog dies, right? Unless they're somehow connected by, I don't know, some sort of technology. Um, I don't think frogs mourn over the death of other frogs. So a frog dies just for itself and in itself. It doesn't die because something else ceases to be. But it's impossible for anything subsistent to be corrupted per accident. That means that if the human soul is something that subsists, that it cannot be corrupted per accident. Now, Aquinas has already argued that the human soul is something that subsists, that exists in its own right precisely because it's intellectual. Uh, so that's a previous argument. I won't get into that, but if you want to talk about that in the Q&A, feel free to ask. Okay, so the human soul cannot be corrupted per accidents. Could it be corrupted per se? Could it die in the way that the organism dies or the body, we might say, dies? Well, he argues no, because the human soul is the form of the body. The soul is a form, 
But a form, not being a physical thing made of parts, cannot be corrupted per se. It can't cease to be, in fact. But if the human soul cannot cease to be either per se or per accident, and if those are the only two ways, then it seems the human soul cannot be corrupted. Which is a nice conclusion, right? Um, the human soul is impossible of death. It's impossible to be corrupted. It actually cannot, metaphysically cannot happen. Um, now, I, I know this, I'm not really doing justice to this argument, but um, in order to do that, we'd have to spend another hour looking at this article. So uh, because we can't do that, I want to skip to the end and point out that there's a, there's, a much, um, there's a much less metaphysical but rather moving argument at the end of this passage for the same conclusion. Right? So he says, again, an indication of this, of this incorruptibility of the soul can be found in the fact that each thing naturally desires essay or being in its own mode. Everything desires to be according to the kind of thing it is. Frog desires frog existence. Humans desire human existence. But in things with cognition, that's us, desire follows upon cognition. Now the senses have cognition, have thought of being, of essay, only in the here and now. But the intellect, the intellect apprehends essay, being, absolutely speaking, and with respect to all of time, right? We can think about anything and everything, all reality, all time. Hence, everything that has an intellect naturally desires to exist always. Ah, so it's not like an anomaly that we as humans want to be immortal. It's actually our nature. Our nature is intellectual makes us desire to exist always. But a natural desire cannot be in vain, right? Nature doesn't put desires for things that are impossible or that don't belong to, don't satisfy our nature of the kind of nature it is. So if we have this natural desire for immortality, because we're intellectual, it must be that every intellectual substance is incorruptible. Now, this is almost like something that Clarence Darrow argued, only he saw it as a point for rejecting the immortality of the soul. The very fact that people desire it, he saw as a sort of negative point because, well, it's just wishful thinking, right? Of course, we want not to die. Of course, we want our friends and relatives not to die. But in fact, Aquinas, I think, looks at that same phenomenon, but he perceives more deeply into the heart of it that this is actually a sign of our very nature as beings that aren't meant to die, really, that want and that have this capacity for unending life. Now, we can't achieve it for ourselves. We reach a certain um, block here and a certain impassibility, but we want it, right? And we stretch out towards that immortality. So what does that give us, right? So let's say, even though we haven't done justice to the argument, let's say we accept Aquinas' argument that the soul of a human being is immortal. 
Where does that get us? Well, Augustine asks himself in his soliloquies, you know, if you, if he said, talking to himself, if you knew that you were immortal, would you have enough? Would, would you have learned enough? And he answers himself, well, it would be a lot, but too little. It would be too little for me to know that my soul was immortal. Well, what more is there? You know, what, if we, if we really knew that, like, wouldn't that be enough just to be immortal? That's pretty, pretty stupendous. Why is it not enough? Well, even granted that the soul continues to exist, what is it doing? What kind of life is possible to a soul separated from a body? We can't even imagine what kind of life it has. How does it know anything? Does it have memory? Does it have desires, joys, wishes? It's not just continued existence that we want. I mean, think back to Homer's shades of men in Hades. Like they exist, okay, but what kind of life do they lead? It's not a desirable one. So it's not just continued existence that we want. We want life. We want unending life. And the only way we know how to live is in a body, right? This, when we think of life, well, it's, to be alive is to be in the body by definition. So yes, we, we're, we're glad if we can grasp this idea of the immortality of the soul, but it's also natural not to be satisfied with that and to want something more, namely to want to be alive again, right? That is to be in a body. Now, it's only, it's only the Christian doctrine which actually makes that promise, right? There, there certainly are many other religions and traditions that have an idea of um, a body in some sense, like maybe an ethereal body, it's a, like sort of a body, but not really a body, or reincarnation in another body. Or maybe, you know, we our soul sort of goes back and joins some world soul that's um, not really personal, but then we survive, but it's not meaningful in the same way. It's only the Christian creed that asserts the possibility, not just that the soul will continue to exist, and not just that we'll have some sort of bodily existence, but that we'll have this very same body, right? So the resurrection of the body, that teaching of the faith is that this very same body, I will rise again in my body, right? I won't be in a frog's body. I won't be in another person's body, but my own body will, I will re, uh, recover that dimension of my being. And I would argue in conclusion that this is really the only thing that satisfies fully our desire for immortality, right? To have life again, life as as we know it in the body, but yet better and more of it and forever, right? So it's, it's life again, but transformed. Um, the same body, but now deathless and transfigured, a new body, which is a spiritual body, according to scripture, um, but is yet our, our own body. Um, so that fulfillment of this ancient longing for immortality um, is precisely what's promised by the, by the gospel. So there really is a good news about death, um, and it's found in, of course, the good news, the good news of, of the gospel. So with that, I'll end. Um, 
Thank you all for listening so patiently, and I'd love to take some questions. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.